0: everyone is welcome again get your discounted ticket at the dot-com slash Latino and as soon as you do send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person and now here's a clip
1: of what's coming up on today's episode one of them comes over to me and they say hey we've got an emergency. He's older, he's a bit frail, he's having difficulty lifting his cup to his mouth, so he can't drink his drink. This is an emergency. And I just, I mean, you know me, I'm a real, I'm a real person and I'm really like, I like to cut through the bullshit. So I'm just like, okay, what? That doesn't make any sense to me. And they're like, he needs a straw. <laughs> we have an emergency. The CEO of Samsung needs a straw. This is the Maverick Show you'll meet today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles.
0: Hey, everybody. It's Matt Bowles. And my guest today is Spencer Gensch. He's the CEO of Hacker Paradise, which was founded in 2014 as the world's first international remote work travel group. Since then, Hacker Paradise has taken over 550 people to live, work, and play together in 20 countries and has attracted participants from companies like Google, SpaceX, and Y Combinator. On the trips, HP provides housing, workspace access, and a community of cool people to explore the city with and party with. But HP also organizes weekly workshops, talks, skill shares, goal sharing sessions, and networking events to help participants with professional development and goal achievement. Originally from you Utah. Spencer was an eight-year-old hula hoop prodigy. He is also a bat catcher. And prior to HP, he was a program manager at a software IT company and co-founded a Tinder profile consultancy. He has lived outside the U.S. for a total of seven years across 28 Countries. He speaks and teaches Korean, has a bachelor's degree in Korean language and culture, and a master's degree in Asian studies. Spencer, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Awesome to have you. Let me just set the scene here. You and I are in Seoul, Korea, and we are currently drinking a bottle of Australian Shiraz. It's delicious. Which is not easy to come by in Korea.
1: No, Korea only wants to give you soju and
0: shit beer. Indeed they do. And we have drinking a lot of that as well. Uh, (laughs) We have. We have been here uh, for five weeks now, and it's been my first time in Korea. I have been... Totally impressed and really, really enjoyed my time here over the last five weeks. But you, I know, have a much longer relationship with Korea. You've been here and lived here for years, and it has a really, really special place in your life. So maybe we'll just start with that. Can you talk a little bit about, I guess, first of all, what you love and what you're so passionate about? Um, in terms of Korea, and then maybe tell the story about your upbringing and how that came about and you came to be connected with Korea.
1: Yeah. So for most people, Korea seems to be a stopover. It's like, hey, I'm going to China or I'm going to Southeast Asia. So I have a layover in Korea. So I'll be there for like 24 hours, 48 hours, and then I'm out. You know, It seems to be a stopover place for most people and not a place they go to visit. But for me, it ended up being a big part of my life. When I was 19, uh, I decided to go on a Mormon mission. And so when you apply to go on a Mormon mission, you just say, hey, I want to go, and they send you somewhere, you don't get a pick. And so I got sent to Korea. I didn't speak the language, I didn't know much of anything about the culture. I had never been out of the US, I'd never even been on a plane. And uh, my parents were very trusting people and put me on a plane and sent me to Korea, and then here I was. Uh, So when I first came here, I lived here for two years doing that and learned the language, uh, learned to love so many things about Korea, even though at the beginning I wasn't sure I would like it. And then uh, it became a big part of my life as I went through and ended up doing a major in it. I did my master's in it. I worked for Samsung headquarters for a while. I taught Korean language for several years. And now with Hacker Paradise, can I come back and do this sort of stuff and, and bring other groups of people here?
0: Well, I have been super impressed with it. And, and you and I have had an absolute blast here over the last five weeks. We've been out to drag shows and nightclubs till five in the morning. I have Easy. been to concerts and breakdancing shows. And we've been to the border with North Korea to the demilitarized zone. We have been to historical palaces and secret gardens and just eaten some of the most incredible food. It's been a a really, really a blast. So I've been personally just been blown away and I totally see, you know, what it is that you and others love about Korea. It's been amazing.
1: Yeah. It's a really cool place. Like there's so much richness to the culture here and things to do and people just don't really understand it because it's hard to break into when you first come like you if people don't speak the language and you don't read the language of course you can't even see what a bunch of signs on the building say so you don't know what kind of venues you're walking past but once you're able to understand some of that you realize there's so much to do that people are really friendly and it's just a really really fun place to like Party to go out to drink, even though they have shit beer, um, and the like. Normal Korean cycle when you go out on nights of going doing karaoke, going getting some food, going drinking, going clubbing, and then like making that rinse and repeat all over again, and going back and doing that cycle is a really really fun way to spend a Friday night. It's amazing, and
0: all of the nightclubs are open until at least seven o'clock in the morning. I mean, this is truly a twenty-four hour round-the-clock city that. The okay. You know, depending on whatever it is that you're into, whatever hours that you keep, you know, this is really a 24 7 city. And that's been, that's been amazing to experience.
1: It's one of those places that if you go out on a Friday or Saturday night, like you are committed and you are not going home because the subway shuts down at around 12 or 1 a.m. and it doesn't open back up till about 6. So most people then say, Great, the subway's down. There's no way for me to get home. You can take a cab, but nobody wants to do that. So then they stay and party until 6 a.m when the subway opens back up. When I used to live here, I joined a soccer league, a football league, and I played on Saturday mornings at seven. And so we would actually come to a elementary school that's really close to where we are right now, every morning, every Saturday morning at 7 a.m. And we would pull up and we would drive into the parking lot. And we drive past all these bars here that were just still full of people out at 7 a.m. We were just waking up fresh, ready to play football. And everybody here was drunk and stumbling through the streets and had been out partying all night. So it's definitely a place where if you want to go hard, there are lots of places to go hard in Korea.
0: Let's go back now a little bit and talk about your upbringing you You kind of started at age nineteen, but let's go back further than that uh, and maybe talk a little bit about your upbringing in Utah. We mentioned in the in the uh, bio here that you were a uh, eight or nine year old hula hoop prodigy, so maybe start with that, but talk a little bit about your upbringing and then sort of that you know cultural transition then as you went from that you know, over to Korea and and how you
1: developed personally through that experience. I spent most of my childhood living in Utah and growing up there. Um, and when I was eight, I decided to go out for the school play because I was a, an aspiring young child. I thought I would be great. And, you know, when you're young and you think you're a lot greater than you really are. I wa- I tried out for the lead role of our school play. And I did not get the role. I was terrible at it. And my older brother ended up taking the role and did a great job. Um, But they gave me a consolation type role. It's like, we won't kick you out of the play, but we're not going to give you anything important with the speaking lines. So I was supposed to represent Saturn in a play that was about the cosmic system, the universe. And so for ours to represent Saturn, we had to do a hula hoop dance number in the middle. And I did not know how to hula hoop until that event and we had hula hoop training by a hula hoop trainer. And I turned out to be really, really good. And I was able to do this special move no one else could do where I would hula hoop around my hips and then pop it up to my shoulders and then up to my arm above my head and then all the way back down, and all the way back up. And I just make this constant movement of it going up and down. Yeah, it was really impressive. Wow. So I was the only kid that was able to do that move. And so I got a solo in our school play dance number where everyone else kind of was like my background dancer hula hoopers. And I was front and center for this moment when uh, I, I did my special move and I got like a standing ovation. It was beautiful. Um, the problem with hula hooping as a child is like many other careers as a child as once you hit puberty a lots of times it wrecks it so as I started to grow and got hips it really killed that move for me and I was no longer able to do my signature hula hoop movement and so it just had to be one of those things that I moved past in life
0: and so then you moved on to bat catching
1: tell us about that I did. I worked at a summer camp for four years in a row and I did a lot of things there. I taught Korean there. It was a Korean language immersion summer camp. I was a uh, lifeguard. So I used to pull leeches off kids when they'd come out of the lake and had leeches on them. That was always exciting. And then the other part that went along with it is there were bats that went into the cabins. They decided it was a good idea just to give us a 20-minute training on how to handle bats that might have rabies and that that would be sufficient. And it's clearly not for anyone who has any sense. But they uh, gave us this little training and said, if there's a bat in the cabin and a kid has been asleep and we don't know if a bat has bit the child, then you must capture that bat because we have to take it to the vet and test them for rabies. Otherwise, if you're not able to capture that bat... Then we have to take every kid in and test them for rabies, which you do not want to do. So they gave us this really sham training of how to catch a bat. And our tools were a baseball mitt, I believe, and an ice cream bucket. And at once we used, uh, they had like a tennis racket that we were supposed to like hit them in with. I don't know. It was really hacked together. And so there was a couple times when they would call us, and there'd be bats in the cabins, and they weren't sure if the kids got bit. So we would have to catch that bat, and it's not an easy thing to do if you've ever tried. I don't. I don't think it's a common thing. Many people have tried. I have never tried to catch a bat. I can teach you in twenty minutes, <laughs> though it probably won't be good training. Uh, but there was this one time where we went to go catch this bat in the apartment, and the kids had trapped it in the bathroom. And the electricity was out in the bathroom for whatever reason. So there was just this bat circling in there alone. And they sent us in and shut the door behind us to like lock us in until we caught the bat. And it was a scene straight out of a horror film where you can't see what's going on. You just have this... Thing flying around you, hitting you every once in a while, kind of making all these noises. And without any light, we're trying to wave around a baseball mitt, a tennis racket, and an ice cream bucket and somehow catch this bat. We generally weren't very successful, as you can probably tell from my story, but there was a couple times we caught them. It was, I was impressed the times we did catch them. That is an impressive
0: feat. Um, and not something that I feel like I would be very talented at. So
1: kudos to you for... Whatever it was that you ended up catching. Well, let's go to Minnesota and we'll, we'll do a test. We'll put us both in cabins and see who can catch more bats. So this was
0: uh, a Korean immersion camp where this was happening. So you had Correct. gone to Korea, then you had come back, and then you had gone back. And you've been back and forth to Korea now how many times and for how much
1: have you lived here? Oh, this is probably the sixth time I've been here. Um, and I, it's been about three years total that I've spent in Korea. And the first chunk when I was a missionary was the longest. That was two years solid. And then after that, it's been months here and months there as I was doing my degree in Korean studies. So I came back for a couple different things. I worked for Samsung Samsung for a while, and then I've come back with Hacker Paradise now twice.
0: So let's talk about that Samsung thing and how that
1: came about. Let's do it. (laughs) Uh, Go ahead and tell that story. I lived in Vancouver when I was doing my master's degree. And while I was in Vancouver, they had the 2010 Winter Olympics. So... They actually closed down campus because there was events there and the students were on break for a month. So I thought this will be great. I will volunteer for the Olympics. What a great experience. And I said, I told them when I applied, I'm only really going to do this. If I get to use my Korean, I was pretty selfish in that way. I didn't want to be like in a parking lot directing traffic. I just thought that was not a good use of my skills. So I said, I want to do a Korean speaking role thinking I was going to get assigned to some small Korean athlete, I'd get to know them and their parents really well. And it would be a really heartwarming story about how I bonded with this Korean family and we'd have a great time. Instead, they assigned me to be the partner of Egun Hee, who is the CEO of Samsung. He's an Olympic committee member and arguably the most powerful man in South Korea. (laughs) So I got assigned this guy instead, instead of a small little athlete, and what they didn't tell me, though they probably knew, was that he wasn't going to come alone and I was going to be his chauffeur and be his personal escort the whole time he was here. He brought an entourage, as of course he would. He's the most powerful man in Korea. So he brought an entourage of 40 people who took care of him and I labeled his minions because the interesting thing about him and... I don't know if this is like a Korean thing or people in power thing, but he didn't even have to say anything. He would just like send a look across the room and the minions knew what it meant. And they'd run over there and like try to solve whatever was happening. And it was really actually cool to watch this happen as they tried to read his mind and see what he was dissatisfied about. So I got to be his uh, personal escort to a lot of these things. A lot of times I just ended up moving around his entourage. But the one event where they wanted me with him specifically was the Olympic opening ceremonies. So when we went there, we were sitting down. We'd gotten him and his family and most of the minions there safely, which is a whole other story. We did this whole caravan thing where it's like the movies and you all pull out from different entrances and make this caravan and then go different secret routes through the city to make it there. We had to practice it like five times and then did it for real. It was really, really hilarious because I get he's an important man, but it seemed a bit of overkill to me. Uh, we got them all there. We got there safely. We're sitting down and they're starting the event and he sends his look to the side and everyone's trying to figure out why he's upset and what he's upset out. I'm just sitting there because I don't know this is all going on. One of them comes over to me and they say, Hey, we've got an emergency. He's older, he's a bit frail, he's having difficulty lifting his cup to his mouth, so he can't drink his drink. This is an emergency. And I just I mean, you know me. I'm a real I'm a real person and I'm really like I like to cut through the bullshit. So I'm just like, what? That doesn't make any sense to me. And they're like, he needs a straw. (laughs) (laughs) We have an emergency. The CEO of Samsung needs a straw. (laughs) So I go, okay, (laughs) I'll just go ask for a straw. So I went up and I asked for a straw. Apparently there was no straws in the entire building, which was really strange. But uh, I had taken upon myself to solve this emergency. So I ordered the next volunteer that I found that was working in concessions upstairs. And I was just like, hey, we need to find a straw. And he said the same thing I did. He's like, is this a big deal? And I said, yes, this is life or death. This is an emergency, we need you to get a straw. Uh, So it took him about 20 minutes. I think he had to leave the premises and go over to like a Starbucks, like a 15 minute walk away and find it and come back and give me a straw. So I didn't really do much of the work. He did all the work. And then I walked down and delivered it to them. And you should have seen everybody was like waiting in anticipation as he put the straw in the cup to see if that solved the problem. And then he sipped from his straw and gave a little nod. And that was it. Problem solved. Like, that's how he was like, this is great. It's all better now. (laughs) That is amazing. Yeah. It was a pretty funny experience just to see how such little things and that in that type of environment become such big things. And everyone who's trying to keep him or other important people happy, just like run around like mad to try to keep them appeased. Right. And then, uh, what happened from there? So not too long afterwards, he did his bit. There was a part where he stands up in the middle and he had to be there for that. And then after that, he decided that he wanted to go home. He was, he was done. He's an old man. He was a little bit sick. So he wanted to go home. And so they came up to me again and said, we have another emergency. He needs to get out of here. And he is a little bit older. He has a bad knee. He doesn't want to walk through all the people. There's a lot of steps. You know, there's crowds. He shouldn't have to deal with that. We need to get him out of here now. And we need you to help us solve this problem. At this point, I was like drinking the Kool-Aid. And I was like, this is great. This is an emergency. Of course, he has to get out of here. So, um... The problem was there was stairs and steps and security lines to go through and there's a fence and there's crowds outside and like his car was parked so far away. And so I went and as the English speaker was in charge of solving all of this. So I actually went and we uh, co-opted a golf cart. We drove down and picked him up so he didn't have to walk. Drove him all the way around the arena until we could take him up to the exit level. And then I had to negotiate with the police that were there standing watch of the building because it's all fenced off and they have policemen and undercover people circling the area on like bomb watch and all sorts of things to make sure nothing happens. And I convinced them, I still don't know how, I convinced them to open their security gate and hold the crowds of people aside physically, and then let a random car drive in up to the venue. And actually, as it drove up, there was people that jumped out of nowhere and started screaming and talked about how they thought the car had a bomb strapped to it and they had to do a full bomb sweep of the car. I don't know where these people came from. It was a bit of a a myth in my plan. Um, But we actually got them to allow us have the car drive right up to the Olympic venue, breaking all the rules that they had set themselves. And we got him in the car and he drove away. And after that, his minions... Uh, were so impressed at what I had done that they called me the Korean word for the savior after that, because I had saved their God. That is
0: absolutely amazing. And then that presented itself, uh, I'm sure quite the networking opportunity and quite the business opportunity then after that for you to follow up
1: with. It did. I got to know lots of members of his family through that. And so As they left, they gave me their business card and said, call us if you need anything. And people do that, I don't think, ever expecting that you're going to call them up. But I did, of course. I had finished my degree in Korean linguistics and thought, I want to work in Korea for a bit. And I know a family that runs a powerful company in Korea. So I emailed them and they gave me a job as an assistant in the fashion department at Samsung, which most people don't know exists, but it does. And uh, I had two major roles that are of note to say while I was there. One, I was like the trophy husband of the office. So they would take me to the fashion events. And because I was a white man that spoke Korean, they would take me around as a show pony and just make me talk. So they would be like, here's our new intern. He's our assistant who's here. He speaks Korean, go. And just expect me to say whatever. Which was really demeaning, but I put up with it for a while. Um, and then my other big job that I had was during the Christmas season, the CEO's daughter, who was the head of the fashion division, had to write Christmas cards to all of her colleagues in the fashion world. So Marc Jacobs, Dior, Chanel, just write cards to all of them. And so they had to write them in English, and I in their opinion, had the best English handwriting out of anybody. So they said, you get to write all the Christmas cards. Here's the message. And let's see what you can come up with for her signature. So I did like about four versions of her signature. And then they picked one and said, that's the one. You do that every time. And I hand wrote all the Christmas cards to all the designers around the world and signed them with her signature. And then I had someone next to me checking each and every one. And they'd say, no, you smudged next. And they just throw it away and make me write a new one. And then they'd be like, okay, that one's perfect. And they were really <laughs> critical judges. So I wrote and rewrote uh, cards to every major designer in the world that Christmas. That's amazing. So Mark Jacobs received...
0: A Christmas card written by Spencer Jench.
1: Yeah, he probably doesn't think that's special at all, but to me that's a little bit special.
0: And I will say it has been amazing hanging out with you and rolling around Korea and we roll up to wherever it is that we're going and you just start speaking fluent Korean
1: And it is amazing to see how people respond because they're really not expecting that. They don't expect it at all. And the funny thing is in lots of other countries, you go into the world, they expect you to speak. And so even if you speak the language, they're not impressed. Here you just walk around and say hi in Korean and people will be like, oh my gosh, you're so good. So they're really easy to please. I know they've said it to many of the people here in the group who just know how to say hi and goodbye and thank you. And people will stop them and say, you're so good at Korean. And it's like, I only speak three words. But for me, yeah, they're really uh, taken off guard. Um, And a lot of times I'll have them stop and say, oh, can you say that again? Because even though I said it in Korean, they're expecting to hear English. And so they're just not expecting me to speak Korean. So then I repeat it again. They're like, oh, that was Korean. Oh, oh, yeah, of course. I know what you're saying. I just wasn't ready for that. Uh, But it's a nice little trick that I like to have, Uh, especially here in Korea. It's fun to eavesdrop on people because they don't think we can understand as they're we're moving through the subway. And I hear people talking about like that group of foreigners and that tall, handsome guy and that really pretty lady that's with us. And I just laugh all the time because I can hear what they're saying and they have no idea.
0: Well, and your Korean is particularly nuanced. I remember you were able to negotiate with sass. With sass. With the with the woman
1: uh, for a group discount on gym memberships. Yeah. I should be clear to listeners at home that I have sass in no matter what language I speak in. It's just part of my personality. Um, but yeah, she was giving me a hard time about something and I was in a bad mood. It was the end of the day and I just wasn't having it. So someone had offered me a deal the day before a different person. And so then I went in and tried to get the same deal. And she was like, no we can't do that. And I was like, what do you mean? The guy said it yesterday. She said, Oh, there's no way we could do it at that, that amount. There's no way. And she gave me a lot of sass and I had just had it. So I told her there was no way she could do it. The guy yesterday was going to do it, but there's no way she can do it. And I just, I don't know. I just had had it up to here. Um, But she put her foot down and won that argument, and I ended up paying the amount she wanted. So even though I was sassy in my response, it didn't get me anywhere in the negotiations. (laughs) But it was impressive to see, though, I have to say. She wasn't impressed.
0: (laughs) She was not impressed. She was not (laughs) impressed, no. She was not impressed being on the receiving end
1: of your sass. No. That's how you know you've landed a good sass remark, is the other person is not impressed.
0: Speaking of SaaS, uh, one of the other things that we briefly mentioned in your bio, and your string of uh, interesting things that you've done along your way to becoming the CEO of HP, is that you also co-founded a Tinder
1: consultancy. Damn straight.
0: And I went to the webpage for your Tinder consultancy, and underneath your picture, it says, as the description of your role... Your token gay best friend, professional douche spotter, one cup of rosé, and he'll give you the brutal truth of why people are swiping left on your profile.
1: I'm about a glass and a half in of wine right now, so I'm in perfect form to look at profiles. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I know we have done this before with several people here, and I know I've looked at your profile before as well. I think it's a thing that everybody should do, whether you have a professional look at it or you have a friend look at it. Everybody doing online dating needs somebody to review and look at their profile. People are embarrassed, they don't want people to see. Well, I've got news for you thousands of people that you're trying to get with are seeing this. So you might as well have your good friends look at it and give you some good feedback before the general public that you're trying to meet with to be friends or date or whatever your goal is, before they see it and have a judgment of you, you might as well have a friend look at it and give you their opinion.
0: So for people that are doing online dating uh, that are on these apps, and whether it's Tinder or whether it's another one like Bumble or whatever else it is, what are the main tips Well, let me ask you this, I guess, both ways. What are the primary mistakes that you see people making on their profiles? And what are the primary tips that you would give people that they could implement immediately for improving their profile today?
1: Yeah. People seem to make the same mistakes over and over. So it's really easy to catch after you look at a lot of profiles the same type of mistakes people make. So one common mistake with the text is they won't have any. If you don't write anything with the text, it just looks shady and like you have something to hide. Just write something. It's not that hard. We can get into later in the tips section what I would say you write, but you should just write. If you have nothing written, that's a mistake right away. Um, When you're looking at your pictures as well... You need to have someone look at them and make sure that they look like you. You need to make sure that they represent you well. Because lots of people will pick pictures that they think look sexy or look fun or look outdoorsy. But then it doesn't really represent them or doesn't look like them at all. There was someone I was looking at their profile the other day. It had a picture of like their shoulder and then like a beautiful scenery. And I said, why did you pick this picture? You can't even see you. All I can see is your shoulder. And they're like, yeah, but it shows I'm outdoorsy. Look, there's there's nature. Okay, sure, you can have outdoorsy photos, but you can also take an outdoorsy photo that has you in it besides more than a shoulder. Unless your shoulder is your best quality, which maybe it is, mine's not. Unless your shoulder is your best quality, you should not be leading with your shoulder. The advice that my co-founder of the agency would always give is really clear in terms of photos and I think is really helpful to pass along. And just for some clarification, she's a social media consultant for her real job and is an expert in this where I'm just a sassy, token, gay best friend who will tell you what I'm thinking if I've had a glass of wine. But her advice that she would always give is, especially for your first main profile picture, um, if you have a photo that shows your eyes, your teeth, and your hands scientifically that instills confidence. So the other person on the receiving side is gonna think I can trust this person. They're not someone who's gonna pull the wool over my eyes, they're not catfishing me or whatever, this is like a real person. So I usually try to tell people that's the first kind of thing you should go through when you're looking at your profile. Make sure you have a, you lead with a photo like that that's really clear. And then just basics, make sure it really looks like you, make sure it's not weird angles, make sure you don't have sunglasses in all of your photos. Um, And just make sure it uh, represents you the best that you think it could. And what was going to be
0: your tip for the text portion of the profile in terms of how to optimize that?
1: Yeah. Um, It's like applying for a job when you're on a dating app. You need to fill something out, but you need it to be exciting. It should represent you and not be a lie, but you don't want to write that you like sleeping and eating and watching movies because everybody (laughs) likes that. That's not debatable and that doesn't make you memorable or set you apart in any way. So the advice that I generally give to people when they're writing their profile is write a line or two about you, something simple, but something that represents you. So instead of saying, I like eating food, you could say, I always try to find and try the spiciest food I can. Or instead of saying, I like movies, you can say, I can't watch a horror movie because I'm, Too shaky. Like, I just can't watch it. Or I cry with every rom-com I watch. You know, things like that make you endearing and make you a real person instead of just a generic text. So write something like that about yourself. And then the last line, write something about what you're looking for. Whether you're looking to make friends, whether you're looking to share a bottle of wine with somebody. Mine, while we're traveling, is generally, I'm looking for some good street food in town, so let me know if you know somewhere. The reason I tell people to keep that last line is that when you have a match... Generally, if you haven't before, people will read your profile after you've matched. And then as they're figuring out how to say hello and lead off to you with what type of question or comment, that generally is a really good place to help people know what to talk about. So I've had places where there's people that I match with and because I have that line, they'll start off and just say, hey, the best street food I know in town is this place. Do you want to go this Friday night and go have it together? Boom. You're already so much further into the conversation than you are if you don't have that, where in normal conversation, it's, hi, hello, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Where are you from? Like for 10 days before you ever get to that point. So having a lead in really helps the other person be able to uh, jump into something with you that's meaningful to you.
0: Yeah. And I feel like for single people, and I've been you know, traveling the world now since 2013. And for part of that time, I've been in committed relationships. Uh, and for part of that time, I've been single. Um, so I have, I've had both experiences. And I feel like for single people, when they're traveling to different countries using dating apps like that, and these dating apps, by the way, Tinder or Bumble or those kind of apps, they work all over the world. And so you can go to most in most any country and you will be able to use them and match with local people and I have found that that experience, you know, while of course they're dating apps, of course, there's a romantic pretext but, you know, I have found that provided you filter well enough and you're gonna, you know, you're sure you're going out with a, a, you know, smart, interesting, you know, respectful person There's gonna be an enjoyable time, then even if that first date doesn't end up going in a romantic direction or there's not chemistry or, or that's not what it is, it's never, never a failed date because you always are able to have a really interesting connection with a local person to have a cultural experience. And, you know, that coffee or that lunch or that drink or whatever it was, even if it doesn't go in a romantic direction, was still a really interesting way to connect with local people and
1: have a local experience. I agree. A lot of people give first dates a bad rap and they say, oh, I hate going on first dates. They're terrible. And I think if you're out around the world and you have the mindset of trying to meet other people, then you should be open to that type of concept of you meet people and you just get to know them for who they are and that could be one great date. It could be one shitty date that turns into a really funny story. It could be something that goes on a little bit longer. I mean, I've met people in everywhere I've gone around the world through dating apps. And sometimes it might be a two week fling that while I'm there, sometimes it's just one great dinner where you just have an interesting chat with people, get to know them and a little bit of where they come from. And it doesn't lead to anything, but it's a cool opportunity to connect with local people. So let me ask you this, and I'm sort of just pulling back to the very macro
0: level. You have lived outside the U.S. for over seven years now, across 28 countries. Most of those are long-term stays in those areas. What does travel mean to you?
1: What do you get out of it? Why do you do it? What does it mean to you? For me, if I look back at my life, I grew up in a very homogenous Community where people thought the same way, people dressed the same way, people looked the same way. And I didn't know any better at the time. It was just what I was surrounded by. And when I first flew out to Korea when I was 19, as we were getting on the plane to go, I looked around and it was me and like five other people that were with me that were white. And then everybody else getting on the plane was Asian. And that was a whole new feeling for me to feel like I was surrounded with and with different people that were different than me. And at first, that's something that's a little bit uncomfortable. I don't know how to react in this situation. Should I feel weird? Should I not? What am I supposed to do? Can I treat everybody the way I've treated people my whole life? And so for me, that was a really learning experience when I was 19. And I lived in Korea for two years over that time period and fell in love with Korea and the Korean people and the thought of living abroad. And when I came home, the weird thing was I had even worse culture shock the other way. I came home, I couldn't eat American food. I was really weirded out by the way people acted because I had acclimated quite a bit to life abroad. And so for me, that was a really life changing moment for me when I moved abroad at a young age that really helped open a lot of things in my life to just other ways of thinking, other ways of living, other people with different perspectives that I think shaped a lot of my life. As I continued to move through life, I changed a lot after that. I Uh, made a lot of developments as who I was as a person. I did a lot of decisions that my family or the people that I grew up with might've disagreed with. And, and uh, it was a big experience about learning who I was and who I wanted to be that wasn't who I thought I wanted to be when I was younger. And so I think traveling for me was the, the catalyst that started that self-discovery process for myself. And I lived in Korea for several years, and then I lived in Canada for several years as I was doing my grad program, and then I went back to the States when I had a job, like you mentioned, as a IT project manager and lived there for several years, and there was just a part of me that always wanted to get back to it, that thought, I like being here in the States, I have great friends, it's lovely, but there's such an experience of moving somewhere else. And for me, that meant abroad. For everyone, it might not be that, but for me, it meant moving abroad where you can experience a lot of different people and meet people who are lovely but have lots of different perspectives about life and are very different from the people that you can meet at home. So for me, that's what traveling and living abroad represents is that opportunity to just make a lot of connections that make you look at yourself internally and say... I, you know, I've always thought this way my whole life. Now I've met someone who thinks differently where I haven't previously. Am I wrong? Do I need to change? This is a new perspective. Let me like think this through. And I find that when I live abroad, I have a lot.
0: without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation. If that sounds interesting to you, to learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult.
1: And now back to the episode. More of those types of experiences than when I was back at home. So that's why it's important to me.
0: Can you think of any specific um, things that you can share in that regard over your sort of journey of world travel, which obviously goes back quite a while now, in terms of kind of moments where you came up and really, you know, questioned something or changed your view on something or sort of developed in a person, as a person in a particular way, like that self-discovery process, can you give any specific examples of, changes you can recall
1: it's hard to talk about specific changes because I think they take longer than a moment usually something happens and you don't even realize it's happened or you might react to it really negatively the first time someone says something to you or whatnot Um, Like I remember the first time I thought that someone was treating me poorly because I was a white person, which I'd never felt before. And when I look back at it now is a really silly way for me to feel in the situation. Uh, But it made me stop and think about like just I'd never felt this way before. And I've heard about other people saying they have felt different ways because of their race or the way they look or their religion or things like that. And so it really made me stop and think about it a lot more than I had. I just had never experienced that before. Um, and so there's situations like that where I just felt that things had come up that I would never thought about or, or experienced that once it happens, it just gives you a whole different perspective. Right. So
0: let's move on and talk a little bit about Hacker Paradise. You are the CEO. And can you just start by basically saying, describing what is Hacker Paradise? Who is it right for? um, And what type of experience does it offer?
1: Hacker Paradise is a community on the road for digital nomads, and I think the digital nomad term is a lot broader than people think. A lot of people think it's people like you or me who have sold all of our stuff at home and are traveling all the time, and it's a much broader term than that. It's people who just want to work remotely and not sit at home during it uh, when you get down to its roots. So we have people who come out with us to join our group who are from all nations, all races, across all industries. Age diversity is a big thing here as well. And it's just people who coalesce on the fact that they want to try new things. They want to go new places. They're open-minded, welcome, lovely people in general. So we have people join us for anywhere from two weeks to a month to a year and go with us to different places that we go to. Um, And so for us, the big thing that is really important to us is the community aspect of it. It's not hard these days to grab an Airbnb and buy a plane ticket and go across the world and do something like this on your own. There's so much technology these days that just makes it so easy. But the problem with that a lot of times is that people get really lonely. Like we're not... Most people are not structured and set up in a way psychologically that we can spend time like that an extended period of time where you're just alone and don't know a lot of people. So the nice thing about our group and our community is you come in from the day, the first day you're welcomed in, you're part of the group, and you have this group that's with you the whole time that you're with us. I think for a lot of people who are first traveling or who haven't traveled a lot, the common phrase is make friends with locals and meet the locals, that's a lot more difficult than people think until you've tried it. And depending on what country you're in and if you speak the language or if you know the culture, it can be really, really exhausting to try to meet people when in some countries it's hard to break through that local barrier. And so to be there with a group of other people as well who are not from that place and are discovering things for the first time like you are, are are happy to go meet local people like you are, I think can be really, really comforting and a really powerful way to experience a country as opposed to just doing it on your own.
0: And how are the Hacker Paradise experiences structured? So when someone comes onto the program,
1: uh, how is the structure? What should they expect out of the experience? A lot of fun. <laughs> Uh, And a lot of work, I guess I should say, both of those. So uh, we have a structure that's set up on a weekly basis where we have a lot of uh, things that we do, a lot of activities we run. The big thing is you say, yep, I'm going to come. We start onboarding you. We start sending you logistical information. From the moment you arrive, we help guide you in, get you situated, we do an orientation. And then those of us who are running the trip who work for Hacker Paradise are here the entire time to help you when you have problems or concerns or just to help have a good time. Um in terms of like your daily life, a lot of times It's work. We work while we're out here. That's no surprise to people. So you work the hours that make sense for you. And then on top of that, we have a lot of activities, whether they're social activities or professional development activities that you can opt into. So you do your own work. And then if there's an activity that we're doing, whether it's a workshop or a networking event or going to go to a puppy cafe down the street or hiking a mountain, whatever it is, you get to choose what interests you and then you opt into those events. The big thing that I tell people is you will not get bored on a Hacker Paradise trip. And actually you have to learn how to say no to things because on certain weekends, there might be four things that are going on and you can't do them all. So you have to make a choice of this is the one that's most important to me. I'll do this. And maybe these other things I'll do another time. Um, There's just always a lot of fun options of things to do and lots of cool people to do them with.
0: Well, and just to clarify too for folks, we are currently on a Hacker Paradise trip right now in Seoul. Uh, I am a participant on that trip. And I have been, this is my third Hacker Paradise trip of the year. I was in Da Nang, Vietnam with HP. I was in Osaka, Japan. And then now I am in Seoul, Korea. So this is now my 12th week of the year that I have spent with HP, and those weren't consecutive. I spaced them out. So I did Vietnam earlier in the year, and then I've just done um, Osaka recently. I'm doing Seoul now and just finishing up that uh, trip. And, you know, my reflections on it, I've noticed a couple amazing things that have really impressed me personally. So the first one is the level of diversity. On the trips. So on this particular trip, for example, we must have people, you know, participants from over 10 different countries. We do. I would say. Um, And then on, so, so that's one thing is that in addition to being in a new foreign country where we're experiencing Korea and interacting with Korean people and all that, we also have, you know, people from 10 plus different other countries around the world that are all here with us. So you're learning about those people and those cultures and, you know, interacting with, the Korean culture alongside those people from all of their cultural backgrounds. And so that provides an, an incredibly interesting experience. The other type of diversity that I have noticed is that on each of the three trips that I've gone on, uh, which have been for about a month each, there have been participants in, their, in terms of age. There have been participants in their 50s on every trip. There have been participants in their 40s and there have been participants in their 30s, and there have been participants in their 20s on every single trip. And one trip, we even had a couple of people younger than their 20s. There were 18, 19-year-olds on on one of the trips also. Right. So you have the age diversity, and then you have the international diversity, and then people do all sorts of different things, right? There's obviously um, a lot of people that have you know, computer, you know, hacker, right, related jobs, um, uh, you know, programming jobs, or, or, or they're, they're, they're doing something relating to that. Um, but there's plenty of people that don't. Right. I, I mean, I, as you know, uh, run obviously a Maverick Investor Group real estate investment company. Um, I don't know a thing about computers, but you know what's great for me? Everybody else does. So whenever I have a computer issue or a question about technology, man, am I in the right place. So happy to help out all it's the a, time. It's outstanding. But the other thing that I've been impressed with about these trips is the way that uh, Hacker Paradise cultivates organic community skill sharing Mm. amongst the community. And I feel like, one, it just adds a lot of value because there's a lot of talented people that have a lot of skills to share and I've learned a lot. But two, it really creates this really nice, intrinsic, organic community dynamic where people are getting to know each other, not just socially when we're out, but also you get to see people in their element, in you know presenting on their area of expertise. And a lot of times you just have no idea that this person is so good at this or that. And then all of a sudden they're presenting a workshop on it, you know, whether it's on photography or if it's on this or if it's on that, you're like, wow, like that's really impressive that, you know, and you sort of develop this level of appreciation for people as you learn about their areas of expertise and how smart they are and how interesting they are in those areas. And I think it's also really good for the participants because a lot of people maybe have never even presented on something before or, or some people, uh, you know, especially some of the, the really young people here have never, you know, presented on something or didn't even know that, that, that would add an enormous amount of value. And then you're just like, yeah, you know, tons about this, do a presentation on it they do it and they crush. I mean, it's like amazing. Like I've gotten a lot of value from, you know, all of the different people on the trip. So that's been a really nice thing to experience as well.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of different skills that we find that the group has on kind of both points that you touched on. So just, The fact that people come from different backgrounds and are different ages and all those different pieces, so they have a lot of different perspective. And then also their actual skill set that they have, whether they know it or not, that can be really valuable as part of the community. I think touching on both points, lots of people think that this digital nomad movement is a bunch of privileged 20 year olds who are just running around, running away from life and don't want to settle down and have a job. And that's not true that's just not who we are as a community. That's not who uh, this group is here that's here with us now. We have people from all different backgrounds, all different age groups, all different places in their life. Sometimes they're married or have children as well that have come with us. Um, we have people who pop in and out and might be home for six months and then with us for six months or might just be trialing this out for a while or traveling with us long-term. Um, and we have everybody that comes with us is working, so it's not trust fund babies who are traveling with us, um, and just living a fine life. That's just not the group that we have. Uh, so everyone has a lot of cool diversity of experience and perspective that they bring to the group also in terms of skills. We have realized since early on that we have a lot of people that are experts in specific areas, whether that's something they do for work, whether that's something they do as a hobby, whether that's something about their personal experience. And so while we're here with this group, it seems silly to not tap into that. And so we started early on doing this this sort of Skillshare thing, which now has evolved into a really lovely program where we have people give talks. We have people give workshops. We have an event where people ask for help and people volunteer to help them. And there's such a, a community and a concept of sharing inside the group that people are like, I need help with this. Will you help me? And people just say, yes. Like there's not even a question about it. People are happy to help. People are happy to give some advice and point you in the right direction and teach you basics of something. So while I've been here with Hacker Paradise in the last two years, I've learned so many things that I never thought I would do. I am not a hacker either, but I have learned how to do basic coding um, and have made my own webpage. I made a learning Korean website because I had people helping me out and teaching me I used to take some learn how to draw workshops from one of the other people that was traveling with us and now draw on a regular basis. Not that I'm great, but it's just something that I really enjoy now, that I always was too afraid to try or embrace before. And as soon as someone that you know is like, let me help you, I'll teach you how to do this, let me walk you through some concepts and kind of break down stereotypes and restrictions and barriers you have built in your head, then it opens you up to explore that area a whole lot more. So through being with Hacker Paradise, me and other people have all talked about how through skill shares and workshops, you're able to learn a lot of different cool skills that you wouldn't have access to otherwise.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I, I really like the reciprocity Concept and the way that it's been formalized and institutionalized on the weekly basis in terms of people being able to say, you know, this is what I can contribute this is what I'm an expert in, but then also people being able to say, This is what I need help with, and or this is what I want to do. And it can literally be anything from like a work thing or a professional thing, or I want to learn this skill or learn how to do this, or it can be, you know, I want to go on, you know, this side trip and go see this thing, and I want somebody to go with me, or whatever it may be. Uh, and then people will just raise their hands and say, Oh, I know how to do that or I'll do that or I want to do that too or I'll do that with you I'll show you how to do it um, and that that I think really is an incredible framework for building
1: an actual community we are terrible as a com- as people at asking for help like it's something we're taught that if you ask for help it's shameful you're reaching out and you shouldn't you should be self-sustaining and self-sufficient and that's Bonkers! It's just not true. And so one of the things I really like about reciprocity too is we have the rule that you have to ask for something. Sometimes people will be like, I don't need anything, pass. And we say, no, we're coming back to you. We'll make a full circle and come back to you. Because I think it's a good exercise for people too to just get in a habit of saying, I need help with something. And it could be something like you said, that's anything. It could be, I really want to go dancing this weekend. I want to go hiking or I need someone to give me some feedback on my new website or whatnot. But the rule is everybody has to ask for something. And so it's a good practice for people who aren't used to it to say, help me. I need some help.
0: I want to ask you about a little bit of behind the scenes HP and uh, CEO questions for how you do what you do in terms of running the company. And I first want to start with the question of hiring and your the way that you select your program leaders and groom them and cultivate them and so forth. Because I, th- I feel like, you know, the trips that I've been on with Hacker Paradise, th- I have been very impressed with the caliber and the skills of the program leaders. And I think that it is a very unique skill set that they possess. And I want to ask you about how you go about hiring for that position. You can talk about other positions as well, but that one in particular, because I think it's a very unique skill set and that you've done a very good job in finding the right people for that role. So what's sort of your hiring process?
1: It's not an easy job. It's one of the things that I probably stress out most about as the person who does most of the hiring decisions is figuring out and making sure we have the right people. For us, because community is such a big thing, having the right people in charge is what really makes that happen. We learned early on that facilitators set the culture 100%. And so having the right people that instill that right culture is what makes the trips magic and what makes the trip successful. So I stress out about it a lot as we're hiring new people. For me, the big thing that I've learned while being a facilitator myself and as we've hired other people is that it's really important for us to hire people with really high emotional IQ. It's something that I think is underrated in the job market as a whole. There's no way people don't put it on their resume. It's not something that you have a certificate for, but in a lot of roles, it's really going to make or break how you do there. And for ours specifically, where we're working with people all the time, we live together, we work with you, we see you all day long, being able to know how people are feeling, being able to read a room, being able to make people feel comfortable communicating in a way that people need to be communicated with, all of those things is critical to success of our job and making sure that our community stays cohesive. And so for me, that's the big thing that I try to pick out when I'm interviewing and hiring new people. I think that
0: you personally, from what I've observed over the last five weeks, have an extremely high level of emotional intelligence. Um, And I want to ask you about that a little bit and see if we can probe a little bit deeper on that um, and learn a little bit about that. Because I think that, you know, I have watched you interact with the different participants in this group. And I think that what you're able to do at a very high level is to be able to... For, we have a very diverse group of people here, and not just culturally and internationally diverse, but diverse in the sense of what people are interested in, what people are comfortable with or uncomfortable with, um, all of that kind of stuff. I mean, this is very different. And I feel like your ability to connect with people on a level that makes them comfortable and you relate to them on a level that they're familiar with And thereby make them feel cared for and make them feel empowered and make them feel included. I think that skill set, I think you execute that at a very high level. And I think that that is a very unique skill set. And so I wonder if you could reflect at all upon that, you know, how much of that for you is do you think is innate? How much of it was learned? Where did that come from? How did you develop that? And is that kind of part of what helps you identify that in other people?
1: I think it's both. It's part of it is innate. Part of it is learned. A lot of it I grew up with. So first, my dad is a very charismatic salesman. So storytelling and being able to interact with people and find what motivates people and kind of use that not in a nefarious way but use that to your advantage is a skill that I learned growing up it's something that my dad always embodied making people feel like you care about them and not just about something else about them or getting a job done I also am a middle child so I had to mediate a lot of times between my siblings Uh, I have five siblings so in a family of six there is a lot of different personalities and uh, yeah it takes someone in the middle a lot of time to mediate and that was often my role I think the big thing that I learned as I was growing up, which is uh, something that people who want to be in this type of work need to learn, is that being a leader doesn't mean that you're the loudest person in the room. It doesn't mean that you're the one always standing up and telling people what to do. That is shallow leadership. Real leaders are people who walk into the room and they listen. They want to know about people, they're observing things, they're noticing things, and they're taking note of it as well so that it's something that you can uh, address. So for me, a lot of times when I'm in an environment for the first time, I am loud and tell some stories, but then I try to prompt other people to talk and then I listen and kind of watch around the room and try to see what's going on. A lot of people make jokes that I hear at Hacker Paradise, know who's interested in who before they even know. And a lot of it is because I watch. So if I'm sitting in a room or at a potluck or at some event, I sometimes will just sit back and I'm eating some cake and watching what's going on and I'll see some people chatting with each other. And I'm thinking, huh, I saw them chat together yesterday and now they're chatting together today. I think they're maybe interested in each other. And I'll talk to one of them later and I'll say, I saw you chatting to so-and-so. I think you're interested. And they'll go, no, there's no way. I'm not interested in that person. And then two or three weeks later, they'll start dating or seeing each other. (laughs) And they'll come back and tell me that I, I knew what was going on. But I think being able to listen and observe is a better sign of a leader than being the loudest one in the room. The other thing that I've learned is just to trust your gut. A lot of people see things and observe things and think things and go, nah, that's not right. Or no, they looked a little bit upset, but I, I mean, they said they were sick. They're probably just sick. Let me tell you, if someone says they're sick, it's almost always a cover for something else. There's other shit going on that you should dig into. Um, but you learn to trust your gut. If something looks awry or something feels weird or whatnot, like trust your gut and just go ask someone about it or just go talk about it. Um, and people will be really impressed that you saw that, you felt that, and you took the initiative because most people just don't. So let
0: me ask you a little bit now about management. Um, so you hire the right people, you get them into the right places in the company, and then you, Hacker Paradise, obviously, is a company where your staff is spread out across multiple continents. Right. So how do you manage your staff, I guess, in general, right, as a CEO, in general management questions, but then adding in the components of different time zones and all that kind of stuff. How do you structure that management operation?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. It is not something that is easy as we've grown. We went from all of us being in the same place. So now I think my team is in four or five different locations right now. And so that was a big learning thing for us. Part of it goes back to what we just talked about. Hiring the right people is a big step. So we make sure that we hire people that are self-starters, that are problem solvers. Um, And I am quick to teach my team when they first start that if they have a problem, I don't want to hear about it. Like, I don't want you to bring me problems. I want you to bring me solutions. So instead of saying, this is a problem, what do we do? I want you to come to me and say, this is a problem. Here's three solutions I've thought of. I think option A is the best. What do you think? And like, that's such a better place to start from as you're solving problems. So being able to hire and train those people on is a big thing. In terms of us and being remote, I think one of the things that is the most difficult is being in different time zones, like you said, and keeping Communication It is difficult when my team is 14 hours behind me and we barely have any overlapping working hours during the day. So for us, being able to put in processes and documentation to have clear communication has been really critical. Even though we're spread apart and you think, oh, if I go remote, I never have to have any more meetings. I can just type everything out on our online communication tool that's not true. You still have to have meetings. You still have to talk to people, even for the fact that seeing people face to face, even if over a camera bonds you to that person and makes you more cohesive as a team. Like just even that element makes it worth having video calls. But uh, we've had to set up a process where we have documentation that's laid up that we we update. We have a process where we communicate asynchronously. Then we have check-ins for different areas and different functional groups. And then check-ins with me on a monthly basis as a manager just to talk about how you're doing overall. So even though you move across the world, a lot of those same processes of communication that you had originally still need to stay in place.
0: And how do you personally structure your day and manage your time for optimal productivity? Do you have morning routines? Do you have a specific day structure? How do you optimize your 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 work productivity to
1: get the most out of your days? For me, having a routine is important. So a lot of times when people move abroad and move to a new place, they'll lose that and they'll just start... In- waking up whenever they wake up and they'll do whatever during the day and then they realize it's already 9 p.m. and it just can be really upsetting to your productivity. For me, having a good structure is really important. So I will wake up like I did this morning at 7 or 7.30. I like to go to the gym. So today I went and smiled as I walked in at the lady that gave me sass the other day. She smiled back at me. We both know we don't like each other but we smile because that's what you do. So I'll go to the gym in the morning and I try to have a healthy breakfast. And that's something that starts me off on the right track. The other thing that I've learned for me in terms of productivity is everybody has things that they put off. Or it's like, oh, I just really don't want to do that. I don't want to have that hard conversation with somebody or I don't want to write that email that I know someone's going to react to poorly or not. So we all have things that we put off. And I have one day a week where I say, today's the day. Like Today's the day I'm going to do everything I've been putting off for the whole week. And it's usually Mondays for me. I don't know why I'm motivated on Mondays. Most people aren't. But on Monday, I'm like, fuck it. All these things that I put off all last week, I'm going to do today. And I just knock them all off. And for me, that helps clear up a lot of the mental checklist that I have in my head of tasks that have been building up, which starts to cause anxiety once the group, the task list gets too big. And so clearing all of those out helps me start my week fresh and be able to jump into the other tasks that I need to focus on.
0: So in terms of anxiety and in terms of stress, uh, the stress of running a business, which I can attest to and really to and all that very well, Um, how do you, what techniques have you developed or how do you handle stress when you have, let's just say a setback or, you know, uh, whether it's a, a cumulative anxiety buildup situation like you just mentioned, or whether it's, you know, a setback or a stressful situation or something going on, how do you, as a CEO, manage that stress so that you can keep moving and keep executing and doing the things you need
1: to do? One of the things that's been really helpful to me is just being able to realize that when I'm like not in a good mental space and saying I'm not in a good mental space, I'm leaving for the day. And if that means I have meetings, sometimes I just cancel them because it's not worth being in a meeting where I'm not going to be helpful and no one else is going to be productive because of my mood. So there's times where it might be two and I'll say, Hey, I'm leaving for three hours and I'm coming back or, Hey, I'm going to go to the beach or, Hey, I'm going to go play some volleyball or something to clear my head. So being able to step away from things instead of just muscling through meetings or activities when it doesn't make sense. Cause you think you have to work till five was a big realization for me of how to handle anxiety a bit better. The other one for me is having a good support structure. It's the hardest thing I think about being the leader or a CEO of a company is you feel like you are the only one that knows what's going on. You are the only one that's holding all the keys to this. And there's no reason that you have to bottle that all up inside. And if you have a good support structure, whether it's people you're traveling with, people back home, a significant other where you can talk through things, it just makes you feel so much better.
0: Yes, uh, totally agreed with that. What have been the biggest challenges or setbacks that HP has had along the way? And what have you learned from them?
1: Scaling has been hard. I have always worked in jobs before where I came into an existing structure, and even though the work might be demanding, there was a structure in place. I knew what was going on, the processes were clear. This has been really difficult in my experience to take a company from a two or three person company to a 13 person company because. All of a sudden, just sitting down for dinner at night and talking between the two of you is not a sufficient way to communicate with the whole team. So you have to do documentation. You have to have processes in place like we've talked about. And there's a lot of bumps that we've hit along the way as we, the first realization is, oh, we are bigger than we thought. We can't do it this old way that we used to do it. So we have to set up meetings. We have to communicate more through our public channels so everyone knows what's going on. Um, So for me, scaling has been what was the most difficult and will probably still continue to be the most difficult as we grow. Changing from 15 people to 16 people is not a big jump, but changing from two to three and three to four people on the team are massive jumps. So for us over the last couple of years, going from two or three to 13 has been the biggest thing that I've had to deal with.
0: And as you continue to grow and evolve, what is your vision for the future
1: of HP? Drinking more wine like this. (laughs) (laughs) This is what every Thursday night should be. (laughs) I'm starting a new Hacker Paradise activity. Um, For us, we are a boutique travel organization, and we really like that about ourselves and our Community members really like that about ourselves. It's not an organization where if you have a complaint, we send you to someone else to talk to. You just come and find me. I'm sitting on the table next to you at the workspace, right? So we really like that we're not a a big corporation. So whatever happens, we always want to keep that same boutique community feel. For us, we would like to, over the next uh, year or so, be able to roll out maybe another trip. So right now we have two going on at the same time. We could potentially roll out a third, which would be fun because right now we have two locations we go to that are cool sort of locations. And if we had a third, I would maybe roll out another third location that would be a bit more experimental, a bit edgy, uh, would be fun places. Like maybe we'd take a ship down to Antarctica. I don't know. You know, you have just more ability to, to experiment with a third trip, which I think would be really fun. Another thing we've thought about doing if we were to roll out a third trip is do more niche type trips. So right now everybody comes on a trip. It's a lovely, well-rounded community. But some people might be looking for a community that's really similar to them in terms of their industry. So maybe a group of founders or a group of entrepreneurs or people who want to do a lot of yoga while they're on a trip. So it'd be interesting to try to experiment with the different trip formats in that regard.
0: And can you talk a little bit about once someone participates in an HP trip and then they, when they leave the trip, uh, the extent to which they remain connected with the HP family through the alumni network and that kind of stuff and what that means?
1: we are like the mafia once you get in you can't get out so you are connected to us for life whether you want to or not
0: which is amazing by the way <laughs> because and i will say this i as i mentioned have been on 3 hp trips so far and i when i'm when i have been outside of hp and not on an hp trip most of the cities that i've gone to i've literally run into Or made arrangements to meet up with other HP people that are going to be there that I had met on previous HP trips. So, for example, I am leaving tomorrow, uh, Korea, I'm leaving Korea tomorrow, and I'm flying to Nairobi, Kenya. Hmm. And I am going to be there for a month with, meeting up with, another person who I met on an HP trip back in March in Da Nang, Vietnam. And so even if you go somewhere, HP is not there, they don't have a presence there, it's not an HP trip, but I'm going there, who from HP is going to be there, this kind of stuff, and boom, I find that I'm going to know someone from HP that's going to be there. Or another example, I went to Valencia earlier this year in May. I wasn't on an HP trip, but... Um, HP was there and overlapped with me for a little bit of the time. Same program lead that was uh, running the Vietnam trip, so I knew some people there. And again, was able to connect and hang out and all this kind of stuff. And so, once you come on the you know these trips and you're part of that alumni network and you start meeting these people, it's amazing how your paths overlap as you continue to
1: travel, even if it's in a non-HP capacity. Our alumni network at this point is over 500 people from all over the world. And very different, like we said, but everybody is the same sort of vibe that we've talked about. They're open, they are they like new experiences, like meeting new people. They're welcoming and lovely people in general, usually that do really cool, interesting things and have wild, crazy, lovely lives. And so, yeah, we have a lot of people that are similar to you that will meet up with other age people they've met on trips, even when they're off trip. And then there's a lot of people that meet up with people they don't know. They'll just post in our communication tool that we set everyone up at and say, hey, I'm gonna be in Belgrade for two months, is anyone around? Five people respond and then they all go out to hang out and end up hanging out while they're there. For me, I had an experience too. I know almost everybody that's come on HP because I have been an integral part of this for several years. But there was someone who lived in Hong Kong who one day just said, hey, if anyone stops in Hong Kong, I have an extra bedroom and anyone any any HP person is welcome to stay because I know the caliber of HP people. I like meeting new people. So if HP people come by, just message me and you can stay. Which I thought was great because I was going to Hong Kong. So <laughs> if you've ever looked at apartments or hotels in Hong Kong, you will realize what well, this is a huge perk. Not cheap. Not cheap. Yeah. So I messaged him and I said, you don't know me, but I run Hacker Paradise these days. You were before my time. And I'm coming to Hong Kong. Can I stay? And he said, yeah, of course. So I didn't know him. I showed up spent five days staying with him. Lovely guy. We had a great time. And then I left. And actually, as I was leaving, he was cleaning the room for another HP person that was coming that same day. So yeah, there's just this connection between people that even if you haven't met them on a trip, there's a sense of you're an HP person. I'm an HP person. We have had a similar experience. We'll meet up and even if we have nothing else in common, you can always like talk shit about Spencer or something because you'll probably (laughs) both know me. Like that's how you can bond from as soon as you go. So yeah, for us, it's something that's hard to explain to people before they come on a trip. But being able to, after a trip, be connected online to the rest of our entire community that's come before you is a huge perk.
0: And it's particularly nice if anyone's listening who is not in the digital nomad space or the travel circuit or that kind of stuff, and they might be coming from a place like... Utah, mm. where they haven't done a lot of traveling and maybe there's not a lot of people around them that have done it, but they kind of are listening to podcasts like this and want to get into the game. You know, just coming and dipping your foot in, you know, and you can start with HP for two weeks. Some people literally come for two weeks. Right. Trial um, run. Yeah. Trial run. You know, they, they, they take a vacation or they get a two week, you know, remote work arrangement or whatever, and they come for two weeks. And once you do that, Not only do you experience HP, but now you're all of a sudden connected with tons of other people that do this. And it really, I think, as a first step, just opens the door to incredible possibilities by simply being in a social network of other people that think this way
1: and appreciate the values of travel and living abroad and are passionate about that. Yeah, we've had people come with us who it was their first time moving abroad, their first time doing this type of thing and they love the people, they love the experience and not to sound trite, but they get inspired by people who are doing this type of thing. Um, And I've had people that I know who I've been with on trips who then go home and say, for the last 10 years, I've been working at this company on a job that I didn't like and I didn't care about. And then i came to hacker paradise and it just changed the whole way i thought about things so i got home the day i got home i quit my job i called my best friend and we just started the company that we've talked about running since we were little and it's rough right now we're going to make it work and we're trying to make it happen and then as soon as it happens i'm coming back out to a hacker paradise trip and just hearing those stories is really powerful for me because we have a lot of fun we do a lot of fun things but like There's a lot of people who through this type of experience, their life changes, similar to how mine did when I first started traveling. There's a lot of people that this is a totally life-changing event that helps them look at life a different way, find a new sort of energy. And so being able to be there with people and see when that happens is really, really incredible.
0: That is amazing. How do you see the digital nomad ecosystem Evolving. Let me maybe contextualize this question a little bit just from my personal experience. So I put all of my stuff in storage, get rid of my apartment, get rid of my car, you know, downsized my personal possessions, and I started traveling the world. I left the US in 2013. That was before Hacker Paradise or any of these other work travel groups existed at all. And at the time, when I left in 2013, I went to Buenos Aires. That was the first place I went. I was there for about three months. And, you know, I was like, wow, I can't believe how amazing it is that we have Airbnb. <laughs> because, but, but, but seriously, though, because I said, you know, we have Airbnb and we have Uber and we have these services because 10 years ago, you know, you wouldn't have been able to do what I was doing in 2013. You would have had to either like find a broker and get an apartment and do with this or stay at a hotel and just, I mean, have a, you know, so Airbnb, the advent of Airbnb for world travel where I could just pick any city in the world and I could book in advance for the exact number of nights I wanted to be there. And I could go in and I could go out and I could land at the airport and I could get an Uber to my Airbnb. Even if I didn't speak the language, I just put the address in on the Uber and they picked me up and they drive me. And I, in 2013, I was like, wow. I'm so appreciative of, you know, th- these amazing things that have are allowing me to travel the world, which 10 years ago, I, I just simply would not have been able to do it in that way. And then... You know, after that, you know, HP came into the space in 2014 and then other companies started coming into the space This started adding additional types of value, right? You right. guys said, oh, by the way, in addition to a place to stay, you're also going to need a co-working space with 24-7 Wi-Fi so that you can work on whatever hours you want to work on and do that. And, oh, by the way, uh, if you do this for a long time, you're actually going to get pretty lonely trying to do it by yourself. So you're really going to need a community of people, right. which is 100% true because when I started doing it, I was initially... I was traveling with a relationship partner, Um, but I can tell you this you know, even if you're traveling with a relationship partner or a best friend or, you know, one other person, if you do it long term, you know, you do it like over a year type of time frame. It gets lonely if you're not grounded in a social community. And I really was feeling that. And so when I saw, you know, like, wow, like these companies are out there and they're putting together a social community. So I can land in a city and not only do I have the accommodations taken care of, but I have a co working space and I have a community of people that know I'm coming and they right. want to meet me and they want to hang out with me they and care explore about the city, you. care about right. me, explore the city with me and have a good time, that's amazing because it solves for the social, you know, sustainability pillar, if you will, of, you know, living a healthy life. So all of that stuff and watching that evolve since 2013 to now has just been amazing. I mean, it's been like an explosion of infrastructure to facilitate world travel in in ways that you know that I never would have imagined when I started in 2013 mm-hmm. right what do you see as sort of you know where the digital nomad movement is and where it's going in terms of
1: how this ecosystem is evolving it's not going away it's not a movement that i think is going to die out anytime soon now as technology is improving and people are starting to catch wind and hear about this uh, it's just growing even more i think there's a lot of times people think, oh, everybody knows what this is. Everyone knows what digital nomads are. Everyone knows that this life is an option. And that's also not true. I find people every day that I tell them what I'm doing and I have to explain it four times before they even understand what it is. My family still thinks I'm just on vacation (laughs) all the time. And my mom questions my life decisions and why I'm doing this eternal vacation because they just don't get it. Like it's hard for people to wrap their head around And so it's definitely something that's growing and people are learning about more. Um, So as we continue to move more into the future, I think there's going to be a lot of different other businesses that spring up to help solve digital nomad problems. So even things like, uh, project Phi that Google has rolled out to make sure that people can have data anywhere they go around the world is something that has changed a lot of digital nomads lives. So you don't have to worry about getting a SIM card in every country you land in. Like that's something that has made life a lot easier. So there'll be a lot more things like that business wise that spring up. I think there'll be a lot more things in the space of trying to help solve the loneliness issue as a digital nomad. You're right that that's a huge problem and a lot of times people don't realize that. If you read blog posts about digital nomadism, there are pictures of people with their laptop on the beach enjoying life and laughing and talking about living their dreams. And while that part is true, there's also the part where you need to have a good social structure or you're going to fail when you come onto a hard time and you're not ready for it. Um, And that aspect isn't talked about well enough. So I think there'll be a lot more companies that are trying to think creatively of how to make these types of communities for people who are living this lifestyle. Um, One of the things I love about Hacker Paradise, like you mentioned is you see each other around the world in different times. And there's a sense of continuity. Like we know the same people I saw you in one country. Now I'm seeing you in another country. And I like to explain to people that Hacker Paradise is like my family on the road. I only see my family maybe 20 days out of the year there's people that i've been with in the last year here with hacker paradise that i've spent nine months with and they are 100 percent my support structure and my family while i'm here on the road and that has been the reason i've been able to do this for so long i think if that wasn't a thing and the community aspect wasn't here i would have said i can this is so hard i can't do this i'm so lonely i'm gonna go back um The other thing about the future of remote work and digital nomadism is it's becoming so popular and trendy, for lack of a better word these days, that it's something that companies are being put to the task of having to offer to their employees because their employees know it's an option other places. So I think as it even gets bigger, people are going to say, hey, I know my job doesn't require me to be here you're either going to have to let me work remotely or I'm going to go somewhere that will. And so companies are going to start to lose their top talent if they don't start offering working remotely, whether it's all the time or for chunks of time or whatever. I think people are going to start to lose their top talent if they don't offer that as a benefit. Agreed. All right, Spencer, are you ready for some
0: lightning round questions? Give them to me. The lightning round. All right. What is one book that you would recommend that most
1: influenced you? The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. I read it when I was in high school and loved everything about it. I realized you could question society. What is one app or productivity tool that you would recommend? Uh, Everyone should have Google Translate on their phone if they're going to travel. It's a lifesaver. And then I have another app called Habits that I have that helps you easily keep track of whether you're doing daily tasks.
0: What is one blog you read or podcast that you listen
1: to regularly? You already know what the answer to this is. I do. I'm
0: just (laughs) allowing you to share
1: it with the world. Your favorite podcast. Go ahead. I am a huge advocate of a podcast called My Dad Wrote a Porno, and it is not biographical. It is not my own. My dad is a Mormon bishop. He did not write a porno. Um, But it is this lovely group of three friends in the UK. One of their dads wrote some erotic literature. And so they read a chapter every week and sit there and talk through it and make fun of it as they read it. And it is delightful. Uh, We listen to it on Hacker Paradise after potluck. We have potluck after hours and we listen to a couple episodes for people who want to stick around. It's a really good time. I will warn people if you're gonna download it that you will laugh really hard. So if you're in the subway or a public place, be aware, because people will look at you. I also had one time when I was listening to it while I was lifting weights at the gym and I dropped a weight on my face because I was (laughs) laughing so hard. So please be cautious when you're listening to My Dad Wrote a Porno. All right, what celebrity or author or public
0: figure who is currently alive today that you've never met would you most like to have dinner with?
1: Uh, I mean, I would, I like go back and forth between whether I'd pick like a reality TV show character just to like meet them in real life and see if they're the same way as they are on the show. But I think I would actually pick Andy Cohen and just go for a dinner and a gossip sesh about all the Real Housewives. All right, knowing
0: everything that you know now up to this point in your life, What advice would you give to your 18-year-old self if you could go back in
1: time? I think I would tell my 18-year-old self just to embrace who you are and don't let anybody else tell you who you should be or what you should be. I mean, I had a big experience when I moved to Korea and learned a lot about myself. I Went back home and as I was growing older, I made the choice to leave the Mormon church and I came out as gay. And like that was a big thing that changed my life in a lot of ways. And I think there is a lot of things that I dealt with when I was younger or when I was 18 that were out of places of fear or places of just not knowing like what my future was. And if I would have been in a better place where I just would have accepted things and loved who I was for who I was, then I would have been able to achieve uh, the love and peace and happiness that I think I've found now a lot faster.
0: Awesome. What are your top three travel destinations that you've ever been to? that you would most love to return to and live for at least a month and that you'd recommend other people definitely check out?
1: Top three. It's hard to narrow down to three. There's a lot of cool locations. Uh, I mean, I have three in my head because I know I'm going back to them this year anyway, so I guess they count because I've already picked them. So uh, I know I'm going back to Barcelona in October, and so I'm excited to go back there. I love that city. And then the beginning of next year, I'm planning going back to Buenos Aires and then a couple cities in Brazil, but the one that I really love is Floripa, so I can just go to the beach all day.
0: Nice. I, th- I've i never been to uh, Floripa, but I have spent a couple months in Brazil living in Rio, which was unbelievable. Just went to Sao Paulo uh, last year for the first time. Also unbelievable. And I will be back in Brazil in the beginning of December of this year. I've got that 10-year visa.
1: Is it about to run
0: out? No, no. I've got got a number of more years on it, but I'm just saying, with a 10-year visa for Brazil, I feel like I really need to maximize my number of trips to Brazil. You definitely need to maximize it. I might uh, be there in December. We can hang out. Well, I'm going to be in Barcelona um,
1: in... November. Are you still going to be there in early November? You're I gone? have to go home from my brother's wedding. Okay. Yeah. It's one of the few times I go home during a year. Well, I've
0: already been to Barcelona once this year. I'm going back again uh, in November <laughs> because I agree with that city. It's unbelievable. And then Buenos Aires, of course, I've lived there for a total of probably four months. Uh, nice. also an amazing uh, choice. Okay. What are your top three bucket list travel destinations you've never been to that are right on the top of your list where you want to go most?
1: I am an interesting case because I don't feel like I've been to a lot of places, even though I guess I have when you like check them off, but I've like always gone places and stayed there for a chunk of time. So I've never done like a standard backpacking trip through Europe where you go and hit 15 countries. And I'm not interested in that in at that, this point in my life. I like staying places for longer periods of time. But I, because of that, there's so much of Europe I haven't seen. I haven't gone to any of Central or Northern Europe. I've only been along the Mediterranean coast, really. So I would love to go check out... Uh, like Copenhagen or Prague type areas. I've just never been there and heard really great things. Um, And then I also am a sucker for beach destinations. I love to lay out on the beach. And so uh, places like Costa Rica have been calling my name. I don't know what city I'd go to, but I just want to go somewhere at the beach that I can lay on for hours. Awesome.
0: All right, so let's uh, wrap this up and tell people how they can find out more about Hacker Paradise. And maybe just, you know, say a little bit about what would be the first steps for somebody that's interested in learning more and
1: possibly coming on a trip. The best way to learn about Hacker Paradise is go to the website, hackerparadise.org um, and start to poke around. There's a lot of information there. It has links to our social stuff. You can see what we do on a daily basis and and learn a lot about us. If you're interested to know more, the best thing to do in that process is to apply. The application is really short and the next screen will take you to set up an interview time slot with me or one of the other facilitators. And in the interview, it's really just an opportunity for you to chat with us, get to know more about the program and for us to get to know a little bit more about you. So that's the forum where you can ask your specific, Questions about your specific scenario and really feel out if this is a right fit for you.
0: And there are varying lengths of time if somebody does want to do it um, that you can do it for. So you can do it for as little as two weeks, or you can do it for a month, or three months, or six months, or 12 months. And the larger package that you buy, the more time that you buy up front, the cheaper it is per week. So I bought a three-month package this year, for example, as I mentioned, and I um, used those three months to go to Da Nang, Vietnam, Osaka, Japan, and then Seoul, Korea. But when you buy the three-month package, what I like about it is that you can pick and choose where you want to go. So if instead I had preferred to go to Brazil or if I was going to be over in South America, I could have been with you in Floripa or I could have gone to some of these other places um, instead. And so they'll be able to see your whole you know, itinerary online in terms of where you're going and then they can pick and choose both when they want to participate and what cities they want to participate in. So they have that flexibility as well.
1: Correct. We try to give people as much flexibility as we can. It's your trip. You want to have a great time. So I shouldn't be telling you how you should be spending your time abroad. You should be telling me in some ways. So we tell people there's different locations you can float between. You can come for different periods of time. You can pop in and out, kind of like you have talked about with your experience. So there's a lot of flexibility with our program to make sure that we're here as the community you need when you need it. Right.
0: And then if people want to connect with you personally, follow you on social media, um,
1: how do they find you? I'm hidden everywhere. (laughs) No, it's just kidding. I'm all over the place. Uh, The best place to find me is to find me on Instagram. It's just my name, Instagram.com, Spencer Gench. Uh, and you can get in touch with me there. I highly
0: recommend following Spencer on Instagram. I think you have over 13,000 followers now. And uh, I have to say, it's uh, you're definitely a good person to follow on Instagram. So what we're going to do is we're going to put the links to Hacker Paradise as well as Spencer's personal uh, social media handles. We're going to put all that in the show notes. So you can just go to the show notes and find everything that we have talked about and mentioned in this program. All of it in one place. We're even going to put his Tinder profile consultancy in the show notes. Dangerous. So,
1: <laughs> very dangerous.
0: It's all going to be there in one place. So, Spencer, thank you so much for being here. This is really
1: great. Appreciate it. Thank you. I hope we can do it in another country.
0: Absolutely. Good night, everybody.
1: Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Do you want to learn how to travel the world
0: for a year plus with carry-on luggage only and look good while you're doing it? Go to themaverickshow.com slash packing to see a free recorded webinar and learn exactly how Matt does it. He shows you the luggage he uses, the specific items he packs, and the travel brands he likes most. Even if you're just looking to go on shorter trips, but pack more efficiently and eliminate your checked luggage, you won't want to miss this. You can watch the free recorded webinar at themaverickshow.com forward slash packing.